With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This is Jenny Allen, and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. This is Chloe, and I just wanted to have a little team huddle. Pull in close, put your AirPods in. We are so glad you're listening to the podcast. And even though we're in between seasons doing some really great bonus episodes, we wanted to still equip you right now with some really practical, helpful content to encourage you in this season where I know all of us are facing so many tensions in decisions that we have to make with our kids or our jobs or our health, our families. And so we wanted to bring you some of the very best parts of If Lead 2020. If Lead is available all year with the digital access pass. You can get the digital access pass for only 30 bucks. It's crazy, guys. You get to hear sessions from people like Beth Moore, John Mark Comer, Tammy and Kirk Franklin, Chris Kane, Joe Saxton, Ruth Simons. It goes on. Guys, there are so many amazing sessions that I was taking tons and tons of notes. You want to get this access pass. Grab a few friends, sit on your front porch, get some coffee, and do this. Take a day to recharge, to regroup, and just pray and be together. So go to iflead2020.com and get your digital access pass today. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Eugene and Jenny. Eugene has a book out that you have to go get, especially in this election year, called Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, A Christian's Guide to Engaging Politics. And we know that will be a helpful resource for you. If you want to learn more, dive into this even deeper. And you can get that at any major bookstore on Amazon. We'll make sure to put all the info in the show notes. I don't have to tell you this, we are headed into an election and there are all kinds of loaded things happening day by day. And as leaders, it is our hope that you would navigate that well. And I've invited a good friend here to discuss how we do that. Eugene Cho, we are so glad you're here. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, it's a joy and a pleasure to be able to be uh, spend some time with you. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about what you see culturally happening right now. What is this moment that we find ourselves in in 2020? And, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about COVID, but specifically to do with politics and division and online life. Sure. Well, let me first take a step back and say that I can't claim to be an expert on faith and politics. Now, I wrote this book because I struggle with this. It's a confession that I need to, on a regular basis, uh, claim my allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom of God. But I also acknowledge that politics really matter. And we'll get to that conversation. But, you know, a couple things stand out to me during this time. As you noted, it's election season and it always gets crazy. But I think we have to acknowledge that in the last 20 years, particularly in the United States, ideas about polarization, demonization, like this outrage culture that's been brewing within our larger culture, it is at an all-time high. And I hear so many people that 
do faith and politics share with me that they haven't experienced anything like this in their decades of service? So it's hard for us to point an exact finger why, but we know that we're living in some incredibly tense and difficult times. So as followers of Jesus, we have to acknowledge it and be careful that we're not necessarily drinking the Kool-Aid of our larger culture, meaning we're not contributing to the chaos, but trying to maintain a spirit of both peace, mercy, and justice faith, hope, and love in the midst of all of this. Well, and the other reason though I'm still gonna call you an expert is because I have seen you do this so well, Eugene. I do not go on Twitter anymore uh, for a lot of reasons personally. It is not a healthy place for me, but I've kept my account. If you go back through my tweets in the last year, you're one of the only people I've retweeted. And I think it's because you have represented for me this balance of truth and grace, but also you're not afraid to speak out. And I think that's where I pray that people would find my voice is that, you know, I'm going to speak justice and truth and I'm not going to back down from that. But hopefully I do it in a way that's loving. And that's what we all aspire to do. At least I should say, <laughs> hopefully we all aspire to do it that way. But why is it so hard? It is so hard. Everybody's so angry. You know, I think right now the currency in our culture, the best way for me to articulate this, the currency in our culture is fear and frenzy. Mm. That's the currency that sells so much. So a lot of our social media and our, and our larger news platform, and I'm not trying to uh, paint a broad stroke around all things media and journalists because we need them. We pray for our journalists regularly. But it just seems as if that's what gets people to respond in some way. So as we're talking about politics and as we dive into this conversation, it's not just the what we should be talking about. But as Christians, we have to also elevate the how we do those things. Like both really matter. Does what matter? Of course. Whatever policies, whatever conversations we're having, we need to be informed on the what but if we compromise the how, our integrity, our character in that process, it takes away from the credibility, the robustness of the what we're also speaking of. Now, as, as Christ followers, and I, I'm specifically using that phrase, we're not cultural Christians. We're Christ followers. Our master and Lord is Jesus Christ. And so there is that additional burden for us to represent Christ during this contentious, crazy time in our larger culture. And I do feel like Christians, are we especially bad at it? I mean, it, it does just feel like we, maybe that's just who I follow and, and I see a lot of anger and I see a lot of fear. I see a lot of fear among Christians. It seems that sometimes we're the fastest to jump on, you know, a mythical news story. You know, like we, and share it like crazy. Like what, where are we specifically, do you see Christians living in fear? So I think you've named that fear as a real thing, but I, I would like to give Christians a little grace and say, it's not just Christians. It is the larger culture, like all of us, I think. If I can be candid, I think we're kind of flunking this current cultural test, all of us. And because you and I are Christ followers, our tendency is that while we also have much affirmation for the church, because we love the church, we also have high standards for the church. And I think that's not a bad thing. We have to have high standards and to convey that, not with fear, not with guilt, not with shame, 
But because we love the church, we want more for the bride of Christ. So I'm right there with you. There are times I do share the sense of disappointment, and I want my sisters and brothers in Christ to model uh, what it means to live out in the public sphere with more kindness and grace and civility. But it's a conversation that we can't avoid. And, and this is what I'll say. We all know that our culture is broken. Part of our Christian theology is we say that the world is fallen and broken. I would say amen to that. That means all parts of our culture is fallen and broken. That's you, that's me, it's our marriages, our homes, our churches. So in some ways, it makes sense that our political process and our government is also very broken. And as a result, we can respond in a couple of ways. We can altogether abandon politics and say, oh, this is too scary. It's too cynical. I'm going to abandon it altogether. Or we make this our ultimate obsession. It becomes our idolatry. Some Christians might not want to admit that, but I do believe that for some, we've made it the idolatry, the ultimate truth or the ultimate answer to all things. Now, I believe you have to avoid both of those things. We can't abandon politics and we can't pledge our ultimate allegiance. Politics is not the way, the truth, and the life. It's one way, a significant way for us to live out our faith. Mm, that's so good. And so you do believe that we should engage in politics, but how do we make those decisions on a daily basis, whether to speak out about something or not? I think there's a pressure that a lot of people feel to speak out about everything or maybe they just enjoy doing it. I don't know, but I do think sometimes we're not using discernment as to when and how to speak out. Absolutely. I think discernment, wisdom are things that we should be praying about on a regular basis. So obviously politics matter. I know it's a scary word. When people hear that word, we're just so scared for some of us. But politics is a, I think, a fairly general word that describes governance. And so any healthy society that desires to be healthier is going to engage in politics and government. Even conservative Christians believe that God instituted three things, family, church, and government. So we shouldn't be afraid of politics. But I think what you and I, what you mentioned that I think is so important is that we're in this frenetic culture where there's pressure constantly to speak up. And I just want to remind myself to breathe sometimes. I wanna remind others to breathe. The world, including our country, our city, our nation, all justice issues, it doesn't hinge on me and you. Mm. So we have to breathe for a moment and just soak that in. And therefore, even if there's pressure, we need to really utilize, I think, the gifts that we have in the spirit for wisdom, discernment, scripture, prayer, community and not necessarily always feel like we have to jump on to the bandwagon of whoever says the loudest or whoever says the quickest is the one who wins. Sometimes it feels like that's what our larger culture tends to elevate. I, I think back to decisions where I have been very clear I'm supposed to speak up, and usually that's clear to me. And the reason that's clear to me is I have 
read significant amounts on that subject. I have talked to people on opposing sides about that subject. It's very clear to me because I've been somewhat educated on that subject, so I know I have something to say about this. And I think what scares me is that we're all speaking without those principles of just having some basic understanding about the other side, which I think is essential, and then also being educated on the subject in our real lives, like not just a news story from that day. There are people that this affects and has affected whatever the subject is for you know, probably generations. So how do we do this in an educated way? What would you say are kind of your principles of just, you know, before you speak, make sure, like what would you add to what I just said? You know, in, in this book that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, I confess a grave mistake that I made. It was hard to make that apology. But, you know, about a year and a half, two years ago, I jumped to conclusions, made a heaping judgment on some young men that were part of a event in D.C. I don't have to go into all the details, but I realized that I had jumped into the frenzy of activity without really knowing the full story. And I basically passed some harsh judgments on these young men. Now, I could have just deleted my tweets and just disappeared for a couple of days, but I felt it was also really important to own up to the fact that I made a mistake and that I need to not just make a private, but a public commitment to be better and to do better. We're all going to make mistakes. We just are. We're all going to make mistakes. But I think as a culture, we're either in fear of judgment. That's the reason why we're so quick to jump and make statements because we're afraid to be judged by our silence. I think we have to realize that yes, speaking up is courage, but I think we have to also add a different nuance to that. I think being quiet and silent and willing to acknowledge that you're not necessarily an expert on all things, like that takes courage too mm. in our culture that basically demands everyone speak up on every single issue. So both really matter. The other things that I would say is, it's not rocket science, but prayer, discernment, and being informed, taking time to breathe, realizing that my competition isn't the internet. That's not who I'm competing against. And sometimes, again, honestly, if I'm being candid, there are times I feel that, that there is this cloud of competition about who's the loudest, who's the wokest, who's the most just, who's the most holy, who's the most whatever the blank might be. So I just want to, again, remind myself that my ultimate allegiance is to be faithful to Jesus. And therefore, there are going to be times where I will feel convicted to speak up. And there are times I have to acknowledge I need to listen to others, even if I may disagree with them. You know, going back to this whole politics conversation, the reason why it matters so much, again, it's not the ultimate answer, but it matters, is because politics informs policies that impact people. And the last time I read the Bible, God cares about people, especially those who are oftentimes overlooked, marginalized, invisible in our larger culture and society. I think on those regards, we as Christians have a particular uh, conviction to speak up on behalf of those who are unjustly seen in our larger culture and society. I want to talk about relationship because I know this is something in the book that you mentioned as well, coming to the table, breaking bread together. Talk about how that role 
can play a part in shaping, you know, our not being a jerk. Because I, I have seen that in my own life again and again, that as understanding has increased, my anger has decreased about different issues. So, you know, I think as Christians, the book isn't licensed for us to be soft or passive or to not care about certain things. But I think we have to debunk this myth that you can't do both, that you can't pursue justice and be a person of deep conviction, be fierce, and at the same time to be both gentle and Christ-like. We can do both of these things at the same time. And I think Jesus models it. I want you to say that again. I literally want you just to repeat it because I want everyone to hear what he just said. I think it is the key to us going forward. We have to believe this. Say it one more time. Well, for a second, I thought you were going to like rebuke me. I was so scared. Heck no. I am, no. I, I'm just, I want everyone not to miss this moment. So you can do both what? We can be both just, fierce, brave, courageous, pursue convictions, embody convictions, and simultaneously at the same time, be gentle, be civil, be respectful, and to honor Christ in the what and the how. Yes. Both of those really matter. And, you know, I think we should just acknowledge it's really hard. It's a daily commitment. It's not something that you just say, I'm doing this, and it's the... It's that confession of accepting Jesus as Lord. In the same way that I made a, a decision to follow Jesus at the age of 18, I rest in God's grace in that decision. But every single day, I have to choose to make Jesus my Lord and to follow Christ every day. So I think that's in all spheres of my life, including political engagement. Now, let me just go a little deeper and say, we have to again revisit Jesus's teaching, scripture's teaching about what it means to love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. To love our neighbor doesn't mean that we're simply called to respect and to be kind to those who look like us, think like us, feel like us, worship like us. And let me just go there because it's just going to be really hard. Even those who vote like us. And that's where the rubber meets the road, because I think for some of us, even in the church, we've bought into the lie that people that don't align with the red or the blue or our political affiliation are lesser than in some way, and they deserve some sort of abusive behavior. We have to not only model a different path, I think in love, we have to speak against that kind of behavior within the church and our larger culture as well. And doesn't that go back to idolatry? Because basically we're idolizing our party and believing that that is the hope, right? And so therefore, if you're against it, you are against God somewhat. What, what if both sides? Yeah, I, mean, I think we live in this constant binary worldview that it's one or the other. Uh, oftentimes, both in the church and larger culture, I hear people asking me, are you for me or are you against me? Are you an ally or an enemy? Are you this or that? And I think in many ways, that was the question that was posed to Jesus constantly by religious authority and by government authority during his time as well. Are you for or against us? Are you part of what we're trying to do? And I think he navigates a different path about this kingdom theology, this kingdom vision. Again, I'm not an expert because there are times I mess up along the way, but now, going back to like conversations and relationships, I, I want to make this very clear. You cannot love your neighbors, in my opinion, if you don't know your neighbors. 
Everything outside of that is theological gymnastics. Amen. So we can do all of this theological gymnastics. And yet, if we don't know people, even those that disagree with us. So, you know, to reference a sociological survey that was done after Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, incredibly painful. During this time, there was a survey and it wasn't necessarily comprehensive, but it was a survey of relationships that Americans had in this country, white Americans, black Americans, uh, the Latino community and Asian Americans. And what it showed us is that all of us are living in our insular bubbles, particularly white Americans, Asian Americans, we're all living in our insular bubbles. So here we are having conversations uh, on this matter about like racial injustice and racial reconciliation. We're having these conversations that impact policies and people, really complex, hard, painful, raw, vulnerable conversations, and we don't know people at all. So what shapes us? Social media shapes us, and the larger media that oftentimes I think runs on the currency of fear, that's what shapes us. So think about this. When was the last time your view, my view, on a critical matter was actually changed by someone's outrage or someone's whatever on social media. I mean, it's really, really rare. I've not experienced it personally. So Jesus performs amazing miracles, right? We can do an entire podcast galore on just his miracles. In my opinion, the part about Jesus that most fascinates me and humbles me is that Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate in the flesh comes to us in flesh and bone and he chooses to break bread with people he was not supposed to break bread with. That's countercultural. It's subversive. It's the kingdom of God. I know what cynics are going to say. I know they're going to say, you know what, that's just really small in the larger sea of all the complex policies and, and discussions and laws. And I get that. I think we're dismissing how important these relationships really are. Oh, I really believe it is the issue from the top to the bottom, right? From the church to the White House. Like people have got to be in relationship. You cannot help or have empathy for people you do not know. I remember my son was in fifth grade and he came home from school and my husband and I are fairly independent politically and we don't necessarily associate with one party. And so he comes home though and he decides he's gonna be Republican. And he tells us, he announces like, I'm a Republican. <laughs> He's in fifth grade. And I was like, okay. And I was like, well, buddy, let me just say our friends, the cooks, we're going to go visit them because they do a lot of um, relationships. They live in this part of town and a lot of their neighbors and a lot of their friends are on welfare. And I want you to meet the moms that depend on welfare to survive. And I just, as a parent, it was that feeling of, okay, if you choose that, you've got to know the cost of that, right? Like, I'm not saying you can't be a Republican or you can't be a Democrat. I'm just saying, let's understand that there's a human cost to all the issues. And as Christians, we're supposed to be loving humans. And so is there a way to have a perspective that yes, maybe our policy ends up landing in this camp, but we have to realize that there are many, many people watching us fight for this camp that feel completely unseen by us. You know, let's go with abortion. Obviously I'm pro-life, but I have several friends and have had hundreds of young women 
come up to me after a talk or in a church and confess an abortion with tears in their eyes. So we can't just have that conversation out of the context of real life people that I know and love that have walked through something. So while we're yelling this, 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 and picketing and all this, we've just, there's got to be more compassion. And I, I just could not agree with you more, Eugene, that there, we've got to be having these conversations. And until we look at somebody in the eyes and see their tears and understand the cost of immigration issues and even work issues and losing jobs, you know, we just, but it's hard to do. The media is not helping. Let's talk about that too together because the media confuses us. And I, I don't know that it's helping push the conversation along in a helpful way. Well, I mean, I think the media, because it is a business model, right? I, I think they're doing what they're doing. And what I would suggest is that we have to be careful about making sure that our consumption of information is not just purely on media. So I want to be careful not to just vilify all media and all journalists. I think they're trying to do their part. Along the way, they realize, wow, this is also a business and we can sell a lot of ad money along the way. And so as a result, oftentimes it amplifies. If we look at maybe a hundred yard football uh, stadium, it tends to amplify the 15% on the extremes of every issue. And there's a lot of healthy I think honest conversations that are happening in the middle as well that also uh, that I feel like are sometimes misrepresented. It's like Christians. I'm not trying to, again, demonize some of our Christian spokespeople, but when media go to just only certain folks and call them representatives of the church, the church is much more broad, much more diverse than we could possibly ever imagine as well. So you know, going back to this conversation about relationships, I think to myself that the, one of the most scandalous images of the church, the part that I love about church for me is the Eucharist table, its communion table. And the reason why it's so beautiful for me as a pastor, I can always believe and trust that even if the sermon was bad, even if my sermon was bad that Sunday, even if the announcements were a little off, even if worship was just a little off key, I always knew that our worship service would end in the climax at the Lord's table as we reminded people of the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And I love that image. And at our church, we serve communion every single Sunday. So when people came up, especially in the last few years, I had to remind my own congregation, friends, I want you to know as you come up, we don't have a line on the right that serves juice for our conservative voters. We don't have a line on our left that serves wine for our progressive voters. And we don't have a line in the middle with the gluten-free option for our soft independence. There's something about the Eucharist table that says it welcomes all. The blood of Christ is able, despite all of our gray and complex views, differences, agreements, it's able to unify us in some way. It's the only hope, in my opinion, yeah. that we have in the church to experience some semblance of unity in the midst of so much chaos and brokenness in our world. Mm. You know, I, I would call myself an optimist. I really believe, because I've seen walls fall down, because I've seen unity happen in rooms and at tables. Big unity, like these two people 
are enemies online and they come to a table and all of a sudden they're crying and talking about their kids, right? You know, and I've just seen it happen and I, I believe in, in it. And I, I want you to speak to those that are cynical, that feel like we just have to grin and bear it the next few months and get through this and get to the other side. Maybe then the church will come back together. Cause guess what guys, four years from now, we'll be right back here. So let, I think we've got to have a greater hope than just getting through this. So speak to the cynic. Well, Jenny, it's probably not exactly what you're looking for. I'm going to give you my honest answer. I think it's a reminder of there's hope, but we also have to be realistic as well. And let me talk about the realistic portion first. When Jesus joins us as baby Jesus here on this earth 2,000 years ago, I don't want to Disneyize the cultural context in which Jesus enters the world. It was brutal. Pax Romana, so like this Roman Empire spreading its power all around the earth. We also obviously know about King Herod and the massacre that he initiates over baby boys. I think about the fact that there were 400 years of mostly waiting and silence. No prophets, no prophetic word, no words of necessarily hope. The tension between Jews and Gentiles were so stark and divisive. The disparity between rich and poor. The reason why I mention this is Jesus chooses by God's sovereignty, enters the world during the darkest hour. Mm. And during that time, he brings hope and light. And the reason why that's a word that I need to hear is that even in times of what feels like silence, desperation, brokenness. So if we look around us, I think we have to be realistic. We can't have a faith that's naive and just simply say, I'm going to have a fatalistic faith that longs for that one day when Jesus will return. But in the same way that Jesus entered the world at that time, the good news for us is that Jesus has never left. He's still here right now, working even in ways that we can't fully comprehend and understand. So our calling and privilege as Christ followers is how do we partner with Jesus during this time of ongoing waiting? There was a theologian from, I believe, the early 1900s, and he gave us this really important, I think, theology called the kingdom here and not yet. Uh, his name was Gerhardus Voss was his name. And that phrase, I think, speaks so much to the reality of the tension that we live in. Do we believe that the kingdom is here? Yes. God's reign is here, but we also believe that there will come a future time when God's reign will be complete. So in the meanwhile, our hope is in the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. He's going to return one day to restore all things. But in the meanwhile, we're not called to escape. We're not called to be naive. We're called to simply make sure, particularly in politics, our allegiance is not to a political party. It's not to a powerful politician. Uh, the question that people often ask me is, Pastor Eugene, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And I respectfully say, what are we talking about? On what issue? As if to think that one party is able to encapsulate the kingdom of God. So our hope, and I, I am hopeful, but it's not necessarily in a broken world. My hope is in the fact that in the midst of a broken world, like you, I believe that Jesus has never left us. He's here, 
is working behind the scenes. And we should never be in this kind of Elijah complex where we think to ourselves, am I the only one? There are so many people trying as best as we can, leaning on God's grace to be merciful, just, compassionate, righteous. And we believe that Jesus will return one day to restore all things. And Eugene, you are talking to a lot of those people. I just want to honor the people that are part of this community because I have seen again and again, you be bold and you are humble. And, and I'm just grateful for you guys. And I hope that this is equipping for you as to how to go and do it further in these coming months, that this is hard and the pressure is intense. And I do believe though, that there is a way that we can navigate it. I mean, Eugene, I, this morning, I had to post an apology post because of something I had posted yesterday, this morning. So you know what? This is a work in progress for all of us and it's okay. And I think that permission to do it imperfectly, that permission to just go, you know what? I messed up. I love your story earlier of just saying, you know what? I had to post an apology. I think that's probably going to be every once in a while for us that lead and that do choose to speak out. We're not going to do this perfectly, but we still do it. And we walk forward as humbly as we can, depending on the spirit, all the way all the while learning, having conversations, being in relationship, and, and keeping as close as we can to the Word of God. And I love how you do that. Eugene, thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you. God bless you. We are so glad you're here. If you are new to this podcast and you're just starting to listen, would you leave a review and let us know you're here? That's one way that we can get to know you, know your name, where you're from, and that you've enjoyed listening to the show. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you for another episode of the Made for This podcast. Podcast.